Is Pappy Van Winkle about to lose to Michter's and Whistlepig and the upcoming auctions? We're about to find out. We're going to have a discussion with Joe Wilson on this week's The Fred Minnick Show. Giddy up! The Fred Minnick Show is brought to you by 291 Colorado Whiskey, by Michter's, and by Heaven Hill Brands. So this week on The Fred Minnick Show, Joe Wilson from Whiskey Auctioneer joins me. He's got an auction going uh, on Whiskey Auctioneer from May 13th through May 23rd. They've got a ton, a ton of private barrels in there. They also have a lot of Black, Black Maple Hill. They got a lot of Hirsch in there. They got some Whistle Pigs, some really rare Michters as well. I mean, they, they've got this thing loaded with whiskey from Stitzeweller and really all these historic places from uh, from Kentucky. So make sure you go give that a check. But this interview, really, if you're into bourbon history, you will love it. A little bit of music talked about, too. But I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. But first, a word from our sponsors. People want a great whiskey that isn't like every other whiskey. So nestled in the shadow of Pikes Peak, 291 Colorado whiskey is distilled from grain to barrel to bottle. Exceptional Western whiskey, unlike any other. Passion permeates every sip. Utilizing grains from the Colorado Plains, water collected from Pikes Peak Reservoirs, and finished with Aspen Staves, 291 Colorado Whiskey is an award-winning single barrel and small batch whiskey. Hard made the Colorado way. Our recipe, our stills, independent and always rugged, refined, and rebellious. 291 Colorado Whiskey is proud of its humble roots and excited as we expand to new frontiers. Get your taste of Colorado at 291coloradowhiskey.com. Online orders available or find a bottle near you. Ride it like you stole it. Drink it like you own it. Live fast. Drink responsibly. A stamp of authenticity, a commitment to quality, and a guarantee of transparency. On March 3, 1897, the Bottled and Bond Act was signed into law, and an important part of whiskey-making history was born. Now, 125 years later, it's a tradition that Heaven Hill Distillery is proud to preserve. From simple pleasures like Evan Williams' Bottled and Bond and Mellow Corn, to more rare finds like Old Fitzgerald Bottled and Bond, and Henry McKenna Single Barrel. Learn why Heaven Hill Distillery is the number one producer of Bottled and Bonds. Explore the history and requirements at bottledandbond.heavenhilldistillery.com. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Cheers. At Michter's Distillery, our passion is making the finest bourbon, rye, and American whiskey possible. When you only produce very small batch and single barrel whiskey as we do, each and every barrel has to be perfect. No detail is too small for our production team. From careful attention to the 18-month or more air-dried wood used in the construction of our barrels, to entering our distillate into the barrel at the costlier or lower barrel entry proof of 103 so that it's smoother, to heat cycling our barrel houses, to our signature filtration protocol, we spare no expense in pursuing our goal of making the greatest American whiskey. And no Michter's gets bottled until our master distiller Dan McKee and our master of maturation Andrea Wilson say it's just right. Michter's Fort Nelson Distillery in downtown Louisville, Kentucky is open for tours and tastings. Book your visit on our website and stop by the bar at Fort Nelson for a world-class cocktail. For more information, follow us on social media at Michter's Whiskey, go to michters.com, or visit your favorite bartender, Michter's Distillery. 
It's all about the whiskey. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today. This is about something that lights your fire when nothing else will. This is the Mark Devine Show. This show, we're going to discover and dive in and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous. Transform the nature and functioning of our own brain for the better. Go put your virtues in action. Be the best version of yourself. Life is a practice. Day by day, and get wiser and stronger and grow. How do you understand enough about your own mind and psychology and emotions, and how you develop a reflective awareness practice to actually get in the driver's seat of your own mind? We go in-depth with people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, meditative monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and more. Every episode turns our guest experience into actionable insights that you can learn from and lead a life filled with compassion and courage. I started putting all these little tools in my pocket, started to reflect a lot and meditate. There has to be a balance between movement and rest. It all starts with us. We cultivate these qualities in ourselves. We become a beacon of light for others in the world. Please join us on the journey. The Mark Divine Show. Hoo-yah. And joining the Fred Minnick Show, a friend of mine from across the pond, Joe Wilson with Whiskey Auctioneer. How you doing, Joe? Good to see you. Good to see you again. How are you? So I'm fantastic. You know, we're uh, we're we're going to talk a little bit about an auction that you whiskey auctioneer has coming up. Uh, we're going to taste a couple. We've got two uh, old Fitzgeralds, one from uh, 1967, uh, and another prime from 1972. Of course, that's the year that uh, Stetzel Weller sold to Norton Simon. So very two historically significant bottles that we'll be tasting here and. You know, this uh, this auction is from uh, May 13th through May 20th, and it's loaded with private barrels. You can find more about it at the Whiskey Auctioneer website. But uh, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've got your eye on in this auction that are pretty exciting. Yeah, so the, the idea of the auction is to really tell the, the kind of grand story of private barrel selections and kind of how we got to the point we're at today where obviously they're one of the most uh, exciting and interesting parts of the industry. Um, so we're, you know, we're going all the way back to the very early 20th century. We've got some, some bottles of Mount Vernon Rye from Macy and Jenkins in New York. Uh, we've got bottlings from, you know, Hillman Pure Foods in Kentucky, like from kind of the 1900s into 1910s, like really interesting pre-prohibition bottles, and then trans, you know, as we we navigate forward in time, we get into that kind of mid 20th century period where you start to see the first kind of uh, private, well, not so much private selections, but private bottlings mm-hmm. by Stitzel Weller and, and people like Maker's Mark and stuff like that, and then really that kind of turning point in the the 1980s is where you know the the crux of the story when you have people like Van Winkle and Kentucky Bourbon Distillers coming onto the scene and offering these um these private uh private bottlings for people and obviously the headline the headline bottle is the the Corti brothers van winkle from 1974 which 
you know, is uh, an absolutely sensational bourbon and one that we're really excited to see in the auction again. Um, yeah, and you know, those we'll, we'll, go those go for a, those go for a lot of money. Of course, you've got you know people people come to you with bottles. How can how how does that work? What's the process like? How do they get bottles to you? And what's like their you know do they get do they get full price or like what's the how does that all work for for people when they bring bottles to you? I mean, it's it's a really straightforward process. Obviously, we're based in Scotland, and and the majority of the the whiskey we deal with is Scotch. So people, you know, they'll drop them off at the office, or we'll go and collect them. You know, with with American whiskey, it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, this auction has been curated from two private private collections, both based in the US. So we had to have them shipped over on pallets, um, and you know, it's a big operation. It takes a couple of months, and there's a lot of negotiations. Obviously, people, you know, they can be quite nervous. Uh, the and almost all scenarios this is sometimes somebody's life work certainly they're mm-hmm. a labor of love and they're pride of joy and it's very hard to pack it up onto a pallet and stick it on a boat across the atlantic not knowing when and where it's going to end up so um you know it's it's uh, a big operation to get these over here and it's it's something that is thankfully i'm not too involved in the logistical side of it but when the bottles get here it's it's really really exciting to see on mass yeah. so many important kind of artifacts from the history of american whiskey arrive all at one time and to be able to curate a private sale or sorry an exclusive sale from these is, is you know one of the most exciting parts of my job yeah and you also there's a lot of competitors out there right now i mean if someone has a collection of uh, of of american whiskey you know, there's any number of places they can go, and, and you know, whiskey auctioneer keeps getting a lot of those of, of those collections, and, and that a lot of that's because like you've kind of made it your life's work to you know, it, you know, really get ingrained into uh, into American whiskey, and I've I've always been curious like how how do you, you know, obviously you're in Scotland where you have you know the richest uh, whiskey history you know, surrounding you, you know, minus maybe Ireland, you know, that goes back and forth, you know. Uh, but uh, how did you get into American whiskey? Where, where did that passion come from? I think um, I've always been, I've always found myself challenged by things that I don't fully understand. Um, and, you know, I'll be I'm fully open about the fact that when I started working with Whiskey Auctioneer, I, d- I didn't know a huge amount of bourbon at all. And uh, it was an area that I identified very quickly um, as one where there was huge growth and one where we needed to do more with the subject. So I took it on myself to learn as much about it. And, you know, it's one of these, it's such a rich tapestry of history that the more you, the more you read about it, the more you get involved in it, the more you become curious about the spirit in your outside life and you start drinking it. The um, you know, the more ingrained in it you become, and it's it mm-hmm. has become an important part of my job to be uh, completely engrossed in American whiskey, um, writing about it, curating auctions about it, and you know, it's it's been uh, a labor of love as well as my job for the the last five years. That's interesting. You know, it's um, you know, and I know you've um, you know, you've I, I've read your your when you the pieces you put together for the for the auction lots you do a pretty good job of the collecting the history and as someone who's you know done several books in the space and spent a lot of time in archives and everything like i, I appreciate how you get real history versus like the distillers like marketing version uh so i mean I, it, it's exciting to see i always get excited when someone takes history very important and and like what you all do 
yeah, she make money off of it. And yeah, there's bottle sales connected and we're all watching to see how much a bottle is going to go for. But I mean, really, it is it is a tangible piece of history. Uh, American whiskey is. And that's that's one of my favorite parts of it. Now, when we look at when we look at like kind of like the trends in auctions, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about you know some of the trends you're seeing in American whiskey. I'm seeing the rise of like early whistle pigs and um, and uh, Michter's bottles like outselling some of the P- Pappy Van Winkles. Are we are we at a point where the Pappy Van Winkle line is is waning a little bit? You think and losing a little ground in these larger auctions to uh, some of these new brands that are being coveted so widely? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say it was waning as much as the others are potentially catching up. To be honest, mm-hmm. I think obviously we have we've gone from Papi Van Winkle being incredibly rare and small and small batch releases to the the kind of allocation getting slightly bigger in recent years. But you know when we first started to to really make the differentiation between an old Papi Van Winkle from the kind of old Commonwealth days and the more modern ones. We could even see in the auction that although we described one as being, you know, Stitzel Weller bourbon, one being Buffalo Trace bourbon, it took a while for certainly our customer base to kind of twig on to the differences. And it's only in the last kind of year, probably two or three years, where we've seen the price disparity in terms of the value and rarity of those. So mm-hmm. I think certainly the people are always going to want Pappy Van Winkle bottles and even the, mo- the most recent releases are going to get good prices. But I think when you look at the old Commonwealth bottles, the the old family selection releases, the, the Carty brother ones, obviously that, you know, the price is skyrocketing for them all the time, but you're right. The, the, there is an increasing interest in these Michter's bourbons, uh, the old whistle pigs. Um, we don't get as often, but there's, there's quite a few coming up in this auction next week. Um, yeah. And people take, I think the thing I always say, the more the market's kind of awash with these modern brands, but all the brands have these tales of history that you can go down, these rabbit holes you can go down. Mm-hmm. And the more people, you know, part of what we try to do, as you touched on earlier, is give people as much context about the bottles as we can so that they can inform their own opinions as to where the value comes from. And the more people learn about them, either through us or through other sources, the more interested they become in the kind of historic examples of these from the past so you know you might be collecting modern four roses single barrels but the more you learn about them because we're a european auction we have great access to four roses that wasn't available in america in the 70s and 80s that went over to japan and europe and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's this whole world of opportunity for you to explore american whiskey so you're right that there are other brands certainly getting into that kind of stratospheric value area but i think on whole we're seeing the whole market the whole market on the rise and of course, this this uh, this auction's about you know in large part about private barrels, and I could make an argument that these private barrels was how uh, bourbon was originally intended. The earliest true uh, documentation that we have about a new charred oak barrel being used in an American whiskey, the real documentation is not from like you know what you see on the Elijah Craig bottles where it's you know. Elijah Craig invented it from an accident, a barn fire. Uh, we don't really know where it came from, but the earliest evidence that we have is from a grocery store in the early 1800s requesting uh, barrels uh, that were charred uh, from a distiller. And it is an interesting, interesting uh, look into 
uh, how American whiskey progressed. That was how bourbon was sold. It was they did not bottle it and sell it to uh, uh, packaged liquor stores. They sold it by the barrel to accounts, to taverns, to liquor stores. And that lasted well into the, the late 1800s. It wasn't really until the Bottled and Bond Act came out that, uh, you know, we see uh, we see bottling at distilleries being, you know, system-wide and more popular. And, of course, then it becomes a, you know, consumer protection effort from the federal government. But, you know, these, the private, the history of private barrels it's it's both fascinating and it's also the origin of bourbon. It is it is how bourbon is intended to be. It's like a distillery putting forth their very very best, um, their very very best, and in hoping it wins over, you know, somebody that they care about. So I, I, I'm excited about this. You know, you guys got private a lot of private barrels from from the Van Winkles, but there's some uh, some other ones in there that. Uh, I, I think are great. Um, you know, the, you know, Julian or Pappy Van Winkle, this was how he made his, his mint on the, on the industry was he made relationships with, with hotels, with, uh, with grocery stores like burgers and Hilton in um, you know, the Hilton chain. I mean, he had a relationship with Connie Hilton and he sold him, um, and he sold him old Fitzgerald private barrels. So, it is it is a fascinating fascinating history and this auction is just filled with it man i'm um this, in addition to the cordy bottles there's anything anything that's really popping for you that you're really excited about the um so there's some willet family estate uh there's a, a bottling for benili over in japan benili mm-hmm. import that um you know we've not had it in the auction before we've had other selections by them, uh, which have all been incredibly popular. So excited to see how that one does. I think is it's rare for a Willett family state and that it's got a vintage um, stated on the label as well. I can't actually recall what it is, but I think it's an early 80s vintage. So um, that one should be really exciting. Um, as I said, the kind of those pre-prohibition bottlings are really exciting as well. Because that's, you know, as you just said, that's where all of this came from, you know, right. back in the back in the 19th century if you wanted to get some whiskey you had to take your old jam jar or an old boot or something and just get it filled up um straight from the grocery shop directly from the cask and when you look at the trajectory of of bourbon through the post repeal period there's always been a kind of hankering mm-hmm. back to that kind of um that kind of period you know the, the first barrel proof uh, old wellers that came out um in the kind of 1950s were a, a kind of homage to the this kind of high strength whiskey that would come directly from the cask in these shops. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously Stitzelweller, as you said, were very active in giving away, um, you know, private, private bottlings for people. And we've got similar ones from, from Maker's Mark as well. And I think when you, when you look at the big four distilling companies post repeal and the way they kind of cornered the market, I think there's a degree, certainly when you look at bottles from the fifties the and sixties of, a kind of stifling of creativity because they just they had their customers they had um you know large output to make and it was kind of what were at the time smaller producers like makers mark and stitzel that had to kind of think outside the box and that's when you start to see people reaching out to, to kind of third-party clients to produce these private bottlings and uh, for that to have caught on into the 70s and and really explode into the the private selection programs that we have today um i think makes a really good story, which is why we've tried to build this auction around it. 
Yeah, and this this auction is built, you know, is, is littered with Black Maple Hill uh, from uh, from the Willet days. Um, you've got some, uh, you got a lot of, you got the Gold Wax Hirsch, which I feel like I don't feel like Hirsch has ever Hirsch is like attainable. Like you still have to spend a little money to get it, but I don't think I don't think that will go for gaudy numbers like you will see with the Pappies. And I think Hirsch will be attainable for someone looking to get some value in there. I also think there's a bottle of, uh, of Dowling. You got a 16 year old Dowling. Um, mm. anytime I see the Dowling, uh, label come up, I'm, I'm hunting it, uh, because, because of their connection to history, you know, they moved their distillery to Mexico and, uh, started water filling Frazier down there in Juarez, Mexico to create probably the worst bourbon ever made in Mex in that Mexican bourbon. And then after prohibition, they tried to make a go at it here, and they kept getting stymied by by the ATF. They got behind in their taxes and their anchorage facility. There's just so many like little like uh, behind the scenes stories on that particular distillery that just kind of cracked me up. But I've actually never tasted their 16 year old bourbon, and when that was bottled in the, I believe um, in 19 it was it was in the 1950s. It looks like. Um, you know, that would be, that would not be a bottle that, uh, you know, 16 year old bourbon in 1953 or even, um, even in the 1970s would not have been popular, you know, back then old whiskey did not sell. So, um, and, uh, I'm just going through the list here and, you know, you got, you're loaded with the, uh, you know, some, some Elmer T. Lee, you got a lot of the Four Roses. You know, obviously the BTAC is, is well represented here. Contemporary Heaven Hill releases. Um, you got an early McKenna. I mean, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of bottles in here <laughs> that, uh, that you definitely want, want to chase. And here's one that I think could be, that I think could, could do really well and it's going to that contemporary side and that's the kentucky owl the uh first batch of rye you know, i haven't seen those up on a lot of auctions um you know so i'll be very curious to see how how that one does but um you know one of the best whiskeys i've ever tasted is that kentucky tavern from uh from the 40s and you got a bottle of that in there i mean so you guys are in addition to the private barrels um you definitely have a lot a lot of value in here that I think that, you know, can be, can be, uh, very attractive. Yeah. There's a lot in there. I think, um, you know, obviously the, the kind of through narrative of the auction is this private barrel thing, but you know, with, with these two private collections, there was always going to be a lot of other bottles and a lot of other great bottles as well. So, you know, we didn't want to just limit it to, mm -hmm. to one subject. Um, you know, on the, the Dowling one, we've got a, a, quite a few of the collector's item bottlings as well that, um, the Ben Ripey produced just before they sold, uh, just before and after they sold Boulevard to Wild Turkey. So these are, you know, really interesting bourbons and an and interesting, to me, an interesting idea to refer to these as collector's item when you're really in that. I think these would have been turned out in the kind of mid 80s or something when bourbon's really at that kind of nadir in popularity and people, people didn't really want it. And these are old vintages and, and big age statements, as you said, that people probably weren't that interested in. So to brand mm -hmm. it as a collector's item, almost a kind of unusual concession to the idea that maybe people weren't going to want to drink these, but also an incredible piece of foresight now when you when you think back, because that that's genuinely what these have become. But it's hard to imagine that that was, was truly what they believed was going to happen with these back in the day. 
I'm seeing in the I'm seeing in the catalog you've got signatures from uh, Pick, Dave Pickerel on a 14 year old whistle pig, and then Jimmy Russell signed a uh, a wild a Russell's Reserve uh, 101. Um, you know, traditionally, in my experiences, people don't really care about the uh, signature. Has is that changing? Are people getting? Are they interested in having a, a signature on the bottle now? Yeah, I think so. Um, I was I was the same of the same opinion as you for a long time. Um, you'll quite often see signatures all over bottles of Scotch whiskey, and people, you know, rightly as as someone consigning a bottle to an auction, you want us to to highlight that something's signed. But I don't think with a lot of releases it makes a huge amount of difference. But mm-hmm. when we, I think, increasingly we're seeing a a, a huge a huge pool of investors kind of coming into the market and there are kind of fine margins with these things. So if you can demonstrate that something has an extra kind of wrinkle of, of interest or history, then it becomes more interesting. But I think also the, the passage of time makes things become more valuable. So obviously Dave Pickerel no longer with us. Yeah. Um, you've got things signed by the Russells, you know, Eddie Russell's moved on. Um, sorry, is it Jimmy Russell's the current distiller? Or is it Eddie? Yeah. So, so J- Jimmy is the Jimmy is the uh, he's uh, the distiller, master distiller, Meredith. Basically, he's still he's still master yeah. distiller, and Eddie's still master distiller. So they're co-master distillers. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the more people learn about these people, and you know, the more the more engaged people become, I think the more value they place on the signatures. So, yeah. You know, if some like a, a, ge- a generic bottle of bourbon signed by a small craft distiller somewhere in Ohio or something is probably still not going to move the needle particularly. But when we start to consider these big brands, like uh, I've no doubt that a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle signed by Julian or even Preston would, would have significant extra allure to cer- a certain group of, of buyers. Certainly not, you know, maybe not someone who wants to put it on the shelf and then eventually sure. drink it. But if you're buying something as an, inv- an investment piece, which is kind of mixed at the moment, I think there are still, across the whole bourbon industry that it's not priced so ridiculously as the the kind of scotch whiskey industry is that things are are priced out of drinking range just yet so you still are now now, joe i think a lot of us would like to keep it that way and i know uh, i know we're all a part of that equation for the price going up a little bit but um i i i mean this this even even the subject of like talking about collectors you know, there's there's a part of there's a part of me that, you know, I think I don't. I'm not the biggest fan of somebody just buying a bunch of whiskey and sitting on it to sell it. I want people to enjoy it. That's what it's there for. And you know, usually when you these people who amass these collections, they usually buy two bottles. You know, so one one to drink and then one to you know part with later. That's at least been my experience with probably the people you're working with. But I hate it when someone's just like, you know, buying a bottle and sitting on it, and not sharing it with friends. I don't know. I just, I just is always, it's always bothered me. And I guess it's because I share, you know, and like my collection is probably worth zero because 95% of my bottles are open. And um, the ones that aren't will probably be as soon as the other ones are not, <laughs> they're empty. So, um, I mean, it's the, it's the great debate, isn't it, that, that will rage on. But, you know, the, the one thing I always say is that you have to have, if you want to be able to have the experiences that auctions like ours can offer you as a drinker, 
you do need people to not drink everything straight away you know the uh you know the two the two bourbons that we're going to try today from the 1960s you know so that's long before i was born so if yeah. ever had these at the time uh had drunk them and shared them with friends you know that these are opportunities that that we wouldn't have so that's a good way to look is, at it they, they don't but the back then people weren't buying them to sell in 20 years that i think that's the difference today yeah. there's like actual investor funds and everything but um you know and and if someone does want to part with a bottle, you know, and everybody needs the money, I understand. You know, people need money however they want. You know, if they have a special bottle, can will you buy a single bottle or a pair of bottles, or does it have to be like an entire lot? Uh, so we, you know, we don't. We would never buy something directly from anybody. We would just we'd consign it to the auction. So if okay. if somebody wants to sell a bottle, they can sell one, or they can sell an entire collection. You know, it's really it's really up to them how they want to do it. Obviously, if you come to us with 200, 300 bottles and it's it's something unique and unusual as it was with these two private collections, we can look to doing you know, an, an exclusive auction and really try and find a narrative and, and promote it and, and, and try and tell a story through it rather than just in the, in the general monthly sale. But you know, if it's, it's, not, it's not an issue if you want to sell one bottle or multiples. You know, everyone is welcome to be, to be involved. Got it. All right. Well, I think we got two whiskeys here to taste. Let's do it. Cool. Um, Where do you want to start? Yeah. So I got you all sent me this nice little uh, little package here. I've got. I've got. Uh, let's start. Let's start in the with the decanter in the sixties. Now, when it comes to uh, when it comes to decanters. Like I have, I have like the weights of empty decanters, um, and what they are full for. So, like it is, uh, there's nothing more disappointing than when you get an empty decanter or a half full decanter. You know. Yeah. So this one you, was actually. What do you do? You all actually, have like a measurement for for all the decanters. Yeah. So we have, um, you know. I say fortunately, but we've we've been in a, a position where we have received empty decanters in the post before because something's happened. So you know we do have a, a note of a general amount of weights for a decanter, and then what that should be when it has the whiskey in it. So you know everything will get. You know you'll be able to tell something's half empty just from touching it. To be honest, but we will always endeavour where possible to provide a weight of the decanter so that you know people can inform themselves before bidding as to what the kind of fill level of that would be. Uh, this decanter is actually this wasn't a it's not a porcelain decanter it was a glass mm-hmm. a glass decanter um, with a big kind of ornate stopper in the top similar to the the Venetian decanter if you've seen that before from Old Fitzgerald. Yeah, those were nice. Great whiskey yeah, out of them too, and you could. Uh, yeah. The only problem with those they had an incredible amount of evaporation, and that cork would be anytime I'd pop one, it would be so wet. So. Yeah. It's like, you know, these 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 particular decanters. I don't think they have much life in them. So if you're gonna be, you know, if you if you're if you think you're gonna buy it and sit on it, I don't think it'll survive even in the best conditions. Uh, I I would say drink it. The here I am doing the advocating for drinking your whiskey <laughs> again. <laughs> I mean, they are tricky because they can be they can be very fragile as well. They're often only only secured by the bottled and bond strip or 
or the the export tax strip that's put on them. So yeah. you can get a lot of movement in that cork that can cause kind of leakage, or certainly it can cause the cork to get quite saturated and spin around, and that can affect the whiskey. So you have to you do have to be very careful with how you look after these. So this is this is smelling lovely to me. It doesn't have any of that uh, oxidation or corky kind of note. If anything, it's like dried apricot. I get some like um, some like fall, like has like some fall smells. Like you walk outside and you smell the like leaves. It kind of has like a nice fall earthy smell. A little bit of a um, little bit of hazelnut as well. Yeah, it's very fresh, isn't it? It is. On the palate, I'm looking at some um, some molasses, some molasses, real nice molasses. Now, yeah, I would agree with that. There's like a big sweetness to it. Um, Obviously, your standard kind of caramelly notes that you would get with these kind of old Fitzgerald, but it's, um, I think this was bottled in 1967, so only kind of two years after the introduction of the old Fitzgerald Prime brand, which was the the kind of lower proof yeah. version of the old Fitzgerald that, you and know, Julian did, the first. And they, during that time frame, you know, that mm. was when vodka was on the rise and all of these all of these distillers were trying to like uh, change their products, product offerings to uh, compete with what people wanted. And, and that was one of their stabs was lowering mm. proof, you know, and, and it helped them also gave them a little bit of a tax break. That's always nice. And during this time, Stitzel Weller was going through um, union strike after union strike they had so many issues in the mid 1960s and that would be one of the big big reasons why you know the the farnsley's sold their shares and eventually got the van winkles to sell but um yeah you know when i taste this i just think about you know my friends who are no longer with me you know that i used to talk to that worked there then um all the stories they would tell me you know so anytime i a taste a little Stitzelwella from the sixties. I'm reminded of, uh, of how they would, um, the, the, the strikers would try and go into the, you know, they, they would try uh, the, the, or the local, the, the local government, um, like had like some kind of tax, uh, they had a, they had a tax dispute with, uh, Stitzelweller after the strikers. Like, so they had like all of these, local issues going on and Shively decided to the when when Shively uh basically became incorporated and started as a city they offered to all the distillers that they would basically be tax free well in the 60s they introduced a tax and um Stitzel Weller refused to pay it because they said they were grandfathered in to to the deal they made in 19 in the 1930s that didn't hold up. A judge ruled against uh, Stitzelweller, and they had to pay their taxes. And so the local government would go into the the offices and take everything that they could. They would take all the furniture. They would take everything. And so Stitzelweller started moving things into like the warehouses. 
they couldn't, the local government couldn't touch anything in the warehouses because it was a federally bonded and locked uh, facility. So they didn't have any rights on, uh, on, uh, on a, in a federal warehouse. So I don't know. I just, I, I, that's the kind of stuff, like I taste this and I think about that and just a little piece, little piece of history, you know, in terms of the flavor profile. It, it really does. Uh, it really does track like a, a traditional Stutzweller caramel, uh, molasses. Not a whole lot of spice humming here, but it's very velvety on the tongue. Mm. Yeah, and you know that's the great thing about about trying vintage old bottles like this is that connection to history. Because there's always every every single bottle of whiskey is historical in its own right. But you know that when you get things that are from you know, at this stage, over half a century old, you know, there are so many stories connected to that from the time, you know, as you've just, you know, recounted and uh, obviously Stutzweller being a closed distillery, like you're drinking something that, you know, at the moment is never going to be replicated again in the future. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what it comes back to. It's, it's good that there are bottles like this that, that still exist from previous periods because it's an experience that everybody deserves to try no matter, you know, whether you were born at the time or you know 50 to 100 years down the line so yeah absolutely and it's uh and of course the uh Stitzelweller, that distillery ceased to uh operate in the um in the 1990s and while they have it use it as a barrel warehouse now for bullet um it is those pipes aren't churning out whiskey anymore and the grains are different the wood to age this was different you know they they had different um beliefs and how whiskey was made there were fewer computers there were you know stitzelweller was famous for even like keeping chemists out so this was a distillery that was very much ran um like a like an independent restaurant you know an independent restaurant that's you know five star you know they've got their techniques they got their people whereas like a chain restaurant has everything down to a science you know so um definitely a taste of history thank you all for sending this and now that we're going to go to the seven-year-old prime from 1972 of course this is a sad year for Stitzelweller. this is when they this is when they sold uh it caught the van winkles a little off guard they were not ready for this it was it wasn't necessarily a hostile takeover or anything like that but it was a it was not a it was not a welcome move by uh, by the Van Winkles, they did not want to sell, but uh, uh, they basically, you know, the other shareholders did, and they, you know, times were lean and uh, sales were not good for bourbon, so they did they did sell, but they kept the employees and and they brought in uh, some new talent there as well. So this was, uh... oh boy, wow. That smells amazing. This smells like pecan pie coming out of the oven. And then in like the pecan shells kind of like leftover you smell. You just like take those pecan shells and just smell them. It's got like a really pecan-y. This is gorgeous on the nose anyway. 
Yeah, and it's because these are these are both examples of old Fitzgerald Prime, and you know the first one was six years old, and this one's seven years old. But there's a, a real noticeable difference um, on the nose, particularly, uh, and the color. Like this one's a lot darker; it's got a lot out of that wood in the extra year in the cask. Yeah, this is. You haven't tasted yet, so I won't throw my notes at you. But these are night and day. These are night and day. I mean, there is this like. Uh, dark chocolate bittery kind of uh note here with some undertones of like caramel um this is this is intense this is really intense um very complicated like like if i were to taste these and didn't know they were both from the same distillery i would be like no way these are the same distillery <laughs> these are so uniquely different Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on the the dark chocolate. It's got a real kind of even the, the kind of mouth feel very very smooth. There's a kind of luxuriousness to it. Um, you didn't the first one. There was a slight astringency to it. I would have said, whereas this one, you know, in, incredibly drinkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is. I kind of like so. You know, when when this airs, you know, this will be this will air, um, you know, like May 15th, 16th, something like that. And by the mm -hmm. time this comes out, you know, it'll be a different moment in time, obviously. But I'm going to the Derby tomorrow, you know, and uh, I'm feeling like this might be one of those uh, bottles. I just kind of slip in that, you know, in that little uh, pocket and smoke mm -hmm. with a cigar as I'm watching the races. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it couldn't be more more poignant. Obviously, Stitzelweller opened on Derby Day, nineteen thirty-five. Yeah. So, if ever there's a way to to commemorate another year gone by, nearly ninetieth anniversary, I suppose, in a couple of years. But you know, you're right that the nineteen seventy-two obviously is um, it is an important, a very important year in the kind of history of the distillery, and that this one is still labelled as Stitzelweller. So, I think it might just be pre the sale going through when obviously the they started yeah. to be labeled the Wolf Fitzgerald Distillery. So one of the last of the Van Winkle era, which is you know something probably even more poignant for your for your yeah. This is this more. is this is it, you know. Um, and I believe the distiller of the time uh, was Roy Hawes, and uh, um, he was a he was a bit of a, an interesting story there. So it was either him or Woodrow Wilson. They were kind. Of, they were really back. They were really close in this time period. And um, and Hawes was this guy who was. He actually was homeless. Both of his parents were murdered, and he just kind of found himself at um, at Stitzelweller, you know, doing doing work. And he, he ended up, you know, working under some really great people. And to many, to many people's opinion, he was the greatest distiller of, uh, of that era, you know, and that was before people were like named as rock stars and, and, you know, in the whiskey business and distillers did not get credit. The owners did. Pappy Van Winkle was not a distiller. He was the owner. And, you know, Bill Samuels was not a distiller. He was the owner. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is also a little kind of a little ode to uh, a long forgotten distiller you know whether it was Woodrow uh, or Hawes so um, 
you know, cheers to both of those fellows and the work they did. But uh, man, thanks for sending these. These are, these are great examples of, of history and, and things to come and, and your auction. So uh, one of the things that I do on my shows, we usually talk music. Uh, I usually have a musician with me or an actor or someone that, and we talk a little, uh, talk some tunes. So want to take this as a moment to find out like, what, what do you listen to? What's your jam? What kind of music you like? Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds cliched, but I'm into, I'm into all sorts of things. My, my favorite band of all time are pro- probably Beirut. I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, band from, I think New Mexico, um, just like really, really interesting kind of uh, journey through through the yeah. decades with them. They kind of started off, they had this kind of almost Balkan-inspired sound. There's a lot of kind of trumpets and uh, accordions and stuff in that, and they've kind of progressed over the years to be kind of a bit surfier, and there's a bit more of a sound of the kind of American West Coast in their music these days. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about their first album, just before I went off to university in 2007. So I've been kind of on, on my own journey of growing up alongside them as a band. So they've always been really special to me. Um, in terms of musicians from, from my side of the pond, um, I just went to see James Blake at the weekend. I don't oh, know nice. if you know him. That was absolutely incredible. Um, obviously, he spends a lot of time in America um, just with you know his, his friends in high places in the hip-hop industry and stuff now. So it was great to see him touring back on on kind of home shores so that was also a, a kind of I felt doubly poignant because it was this kind of liberating moment because that was the first time I'd been to an indoor venue for a gig since you know all, all of our COVID restrictions and stuff had yeah. kind of gone away so it you know it felt really special to be in the presence of not only you know an exceptional musician and, and hearing songs that remind you of being out and about before all of that really kind of helped bring you back into it because you know everybody's got a kind of different mindset now having been locked up I don't know what it's been like over where you are but you know we've been kind of locked up and locked down for about two years with not a whole amount of stuff to go out and do you know we've, we've been able to entertain ourselves indoors a lot but it, it really it helped to kind of well, help set your mind it, free a bit you know? it depends on what part of America you live in you go to Florida yeah. I don't think they ever felt COVID was even there. Just nothing ever really shut down. Everything just kept going. Uh, California, you know, masks everywhere. Everybody, you know, the the streets were very different. Um, here in Kentucky, it's you know, I think it was right down the middle. Early on, it was pretty pretty intense lockdown. I mean, there were sheriffs going and you know arresting people for viol- you know, having COVID and you know violating. Uh, some kind of law that said they'd stay home or something. But there was, um, you know, for the most part, people are back to normal, um, you know, and now, you know, and, and sadly it just became politicized and, and you can't really have an honest conversation with anyone about it because someone's going to get upset because they're on that side of the fence or the other. And it's just like, I think what COVID did in addition to taking a lot of lives and, you know, putting us all through an incredibly stressful moment. It, it, it divided us even further as a people, um, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I have seen bring people back together is whiskey. So the fact that whiskey events are getting back together and, you know, people are, you know, sitting and drinking in bars again together all across the country. 
I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy for, for us all. So, yeah, I mean, it's great to see. I mean, we, as much as it is bringing people together again now, I think whiskey, even when, when the lockdowns first started, they were great for bringing people together. And we did that tasting together about yeah. two years ago now with the Pat's whiskey people, which was something that, you know, we hadn't done as, as a company before and the opportunities for kind of online tastings and things, I think it really helped bring not only bring people together but keep people together through a difficult time and where we are in scotland just now we've i think the rules have just been relaxed to the point where you can get up and move around in bars and you can talk to you can talk to strangers for the first wow. time because before you had to, had to be segregated at your own table you couldn't sit at the bar and now now everything is kind of getting back back to normal so i'm looking forward to getting out and, and having some whiskey with some people and and starting to live our lives again wow that's crazy well, Joe, thanks for coming on and talking through the auction. Uh, I'm going to keep close eyes on it, um, kind of like see you know, see where things go because I think we're at a point too where most of us are just watching. We don't we can't afford to bid on anything, but it's yeah. it's as it's as fun to watch as it is you know to get the bottle if you have the money. But uh, uh, it's exciting to see, and I appreciate you coming on and and and. Uh, talking through it and also advocating for, uh, you know, for keeping a bottle or two, like, you know, that changed my mind. The way you put it might change my mind a little bit like that. It was a very convincing, uh, very convincing argument there to be made for saving it for future generations. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's a you've good got, way to put you've it. Got, you've got kids, right? Save yep. something special for them for their 18th, at least. Yeah. Or 21st. The, you know, you know how kids are, though. They'll probably end up being vodka drinkers just to get back at me for something that I did, you know, taking a baseball yeah. glove away or something. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, is a discussion for another time, my friend. But cheers. <laughs> thanks for cheers. thanks for coming on and, and hanging out with me. And uh, good luck getting back out there. I think that's awesome you're getting back out there. It's great. Thanks, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good to see you again. All right, brother. Be safe out there. Cheers. Cheers. So thank you, everybody, for uh, for tuning in. Uh, Joe Wilson, thanks to Joe Wilson for coming on the show. Uh, he's just he's such a fun guy to talk to. We've talked several times over the years, and uh, I, I enjoy my time with him uh, immensely. Uh, but uh, make sure you're going and checking out this uh, Whiskey Auctioneer. It's uh, whiskey with no E, auctioneer.com. So whiskeyauctioneer.com. You the the auction is from May thirteenth through May twenty third, so we're a couple days into it already. But you will be able to uh, bid as much as you want, or if you just want to watch it, you know that's a thing too. Like I I can't afford to bid on this stuff, but uh, I will be watching. I definitely will be watching. But thank you all so much for tuning in. Be safe out there, and uh, please take care of one another. Cheers. You've been listening to The Fred Minnick Show, brought to you by 291 Colorado Whiskey, by Michter's, and by Heaven Hill Brands. For more information about Fred's books, articles, podcasts, and more, just go to fredminnick.com. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. 
Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today.